Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. Today we're going to be looking, uh, continuing in the story of David, and we're going to be looking at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to look at most of the chapter. Again, I'm going to take the time to read this whole section. Uh, it's lengthy. I, I know it is. And you can follow along there in your bulletins or up on the screen. And uh, I'm mainly going to be using the New International Version. There will be a couple of times I'm going to swap over to the English Standard Version because they're a bit more literal in their translation. And to, to catch a little bit of what the author is trying to get us to pick up on, we'll be doing that. And so we're going to be looking at uh, God coming and speaking a word of judgment and a word of forgiveness to King David. So hear now the word of the sovereign Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this <coughs> deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you as king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. 
But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He's dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. And his servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Both as a parent and as a grandparent, I think I have watched Lion King a million times. And if you're a parent, here is something I recommend you do with your young children when they're watching it, is I tell the kids it's going to end differently this time. Scar's going to win, Simba's going to die, and it's all going to be a mess. And as you can imagine, my children are never happy with my contemplation of this idea. That's not going to happen. Simba's going to come back. He's going to take over. Scar's the bad guy. He's not going to win. And it's a strategy I recommend because you can actually do it with every single movie they watch, right? Because what do all kids' movies have in common? Like, things get rectified. The bad guy pays for what he did. And the reality is we all want it to be that way, don't we? There's something in us that struggles when it is the bad guy who wins and the good guy who dies, and there seems to be no judgment and justice. There seems to be no redemption. And if you are that way, and, and we all are, at least when it's others that need justice, I'm oftentimes not that way when it's myself, but when it's others that need justice, I'm that way. This story about King David can leave us in that place because last week, as we saw, David had done all of this evil, and it appeared he had gotten away with it. And is that the way things are? Is it that the king is going to abuse his power, he is going to use his privilege, 
to actually commit adultery and lie and get a guy drunk and conspire and have him put to death and show no remorse at the death of many innocent people for his actions. Will David get away with his gross sin in 2 Samuel 11? And then for you and me, what is what happens here in chapter 12 teach us regarding us and sin and judgment and justice and mercy? What does God want to speak to us? Well, let's dive into our text. Now, here in chapter 12, it begins with the phrase, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And this verse, if you remember last week, is a complete reversal. If you're cueing in on what the author's telling you, he's telling you everything has just changed. You remember last week, Yahweh did not appear. The Lord was nowhere in chapter 11 until the final phrase, where we read, the thing David had done was evil in the sight of Yahweh. It was displeasing to the Lord. First time the Lord showed up in chapter 11. Well, now in chapter 12, right off the bat, we see the main actor is the Lord. Yahweh is going to do something. And what he actually does is he sends Nathan the prophet. And if you remember last week, the key verb in chapter 11 is send. David sends eight different times. He's moving people around like pawns on a chessboard, and as David is sending, it's never good. He sends Joab off to war. He stays home and is taking siesta. He sends to find out who the beautiful woman is, and then he sends and brings her back to him. And then he sends word to have Uriah brought back, and he sends word to have Uriah put to death. Uh, And he sends word back to Joab not to worry about it. Don't let it be evil in your eyes. Over and over and over again, the picture is David as a despot sending. Well, chapter 12 tells us David's no longer the main actor, and now it is Yahweh who stands up, and he says, now I'm going to send. And he sends Nathan the prophet to come. And Nathan comes in the mantle of God's prophet to confront the king for his sin. And make no mistake, in the spirit of what we call this series, the Game of Thrones is on. David, the king, who is in covenant with God, who has been told your dynasty will live forever. David, who knows that Messiah will come through him, has done evil. David has acted as if he is the ultimate ruler. And now God sends Nathan to confront David and say, you are in the game of thrones and we will find out who really rules, whether it is you or whether it is me, and how will you respond? David, will you submit and admit that I am the king and you are but my vassal and my servant? And this is important for us, friends, because have you ever noticed in life sometimes you watch and people seem to get away with evil? I mean, if you're honest in this world, it appears oftentimes people are getting away with evil. And as I said last week, sometimes you and I feel like we're getting away with evil. Friends, God is never asleep. Yahweh may appear to be gone through all of chapter 11, but he's been watching everything David has been doing. God is never asleep, and he will deal with sin in his own time and way. And so Nathan comes, and he tells this parable, and I'm actually going to put these verses up in the English Standard Version because they're a little bit more literal, and I want you to see the, the incredible way that Nathan comes to David to try and bring Yahweh's word. 
Nathan knows David is hardened in his sin. So he doesn't confront David directly. He tells David a story that appears that it's, it's a story about something that's gone on. He doesn't tell him it's a story. He just starts bringing it like, David, you're the king, and there's been an injustice done in the kingdom, and let me tell you about it, and what do you think needs to happen? And so notice Nathan tells him, there are two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor, and the rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. And so notice there's this huge contrast. There's one guy that's got flocks and herds. He can't even keep up with them all. And there's another guy that's only got one, one little lamb. This guy's poor. And he's brought it up in his home. It's like a child to him. And notice he even says it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms which is the same three verbs that Uriah had used to David to say, I can't go home and eat and drink and lie with my wife. I could never do that, David. The army's in the field. Of course, David had done exactly that. And then notice, there's even a play on words because he says it was like a daughter to him. The Hebrew word for daughter is bat, from which we get Bathsheba the daughter of seven. So this one's like a little daughter. Nathan's already set in the trap for David. And he continues on and says, now a traveler came to the rich man. And what's interesting, the word traveler even is a play on word. It's not the normal Hebrew word for traveler. It's literally a walker, one who is walking about. Remember, what was David doing when he first saw Bathsheba? Walking about on his roof. Well, there's a walker. And he came and he showed up to the rich man. But the rich man didn't take one of his own sheep. No, he reached out and he took the ewe lamb. Same word we were told of what David did. He sent. And the ad Bathsheba brought him and he took her. And the rich man takes the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and he slaughters it. And he gives it to the traveler. And so the rich man's wanting to be hospitable, but not at his own price. So he shows no pity. He is callous, he is entitled, and he is greedy. And in this violent abuse of power, he reaches out and he takes that which is not his own. Again, same exact word that was used of David. And again, remember, David is hearing this not as an interesting story, but he's the king, the ultimate judge, and he's hearing it of what's going on in a city. And the interesting thing is, don't miss this, Nathan doesn't even get to finish the story. At this point, David is so upset, and he is so incensed, he burns with anger, and David blurts out, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. The the law says he should repay four times. This guy deserves to die. How could he be so callous? How could he abuse power? How could he take advantage of his privilege and act in this manner? I, I take an oath. As surely as Yahweh is alive, this guy ought to be put to death. That's what David says and does. He's so angry. But do you notice how crazy is this? David had done this exact thing. He had taken 
that which was not his own. He had been callous. He had been privileged. He was drunk with his own power. And he could not see his own sin. He was callous to what he had done. He had shown Uriah and his family no pity. But he's full of pity for this unknown family. He can see the rich man as being pitiless. But he can't understand he's actually the guy who had been pitiless towards Uriah. He condemns the rich man's abuse of power and is blind to his own abuse of power. In short, David can't see his own sin, but he can see the sin of this man very clearly, whoever the man is. Because, see, this is another thing. Have you ever noticed sometimes that people who are trapped in sin, their guilty conscience starts crying out? You know the phrase, it's the bit dog who hollers? If you watch people sometimes, the, the louder they start to protest about something, very often that's a sign that there's a guilty conscience that is working here. Something is going on. And that's what's happening with David. He won't even let Nathan finish the story. And notice again, the law is clear. For stealing a lamb, which is what the rich man had done, the penalty is fourfold. You get four lambs back. But David's so angry, his conscience is so guilty, this guy ought to die. Whoever this man is, he deserves to die. And six times, Nathan and David have gone back and forth using the phrase, the man, the man, the man, the man, the man, the man. And then Nathan says, you are the man. It's you, David. You want to know who the guy is? You are the rich man. You are the one who showed no pity. You are the man who has abused privilege and power. You are the man who took from the powerless to fulfill your own needs. You are the man who stole. You are the man who killed. You are the man who deserves to die. And friends, it's silent in the room. Everything David has done now crashes down around him. You are the man, David. You tried to cover your sin, but Yahweh has sent me here, and I bring his word, and your sin is known, your sin is seen, your sin is judged. You are the man, and you have pronounced the penalty, David. You deserve to die. Can you imagine being there in that moment? What that would be. I mean, i got to give it to Nathan. This guy is seriously bold. You don't come to kings like this and say this. This is, this is not a way to a long and happy life. Because this is a guy who showed no regard for Uriah. He had Uriah put to death when a bunch of other people died as well. He didn't care. David was everything of the rich man in that parable and even more. And Nathan boldly brings it. And now David knows you are the man. But Nathan's not done speaking. Yahweh has more to say. 
here in the Game of Thrones. And so he brings a word of judgment first and then a word of forgiveness. Notice in verses 7 and 8, Nathan doesn't stop. I mean, he he has spoken, you are the man, and then he continues on, and actually it gets worse for David. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of that was not enough, David, all you had to do was ask. I'd have given you more. Now, notice here, and I'm I'm using emphasis there, Nathan's not bringing his word, he's bringing Yahweh's word. And notice there where it keeps, the Lord keeps saying, I did this and I did that. In Hebrew and also in Greek, it's not like English. The verb has the pronoun built in. You don't need to say the pronoun I. And when they do say the pronoun I, it's because it's being emphasized. And Yahweh here is emphasizing, you're not king because you made yourself king. I made you king. You were just a shepherd. I anointed you. You didn't get away from Saul because you were so smart. I delivered you from Saul. The reason that you took over everything Saul had and you are now king of Israel is because I gave it to you. And, David, all you had to do was ask. And I'd have gladly given you more. I made covenant with you, David. I promised you everything. All you had to do was ask. And then Nathan continues, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And do you hear the phrase? You remember David had sent word back to Joab, don't let this be evil in your eyes. The sword kills one as well as another. Yes, some guys died. Just go ahead and do your thing. Don't let it be evil in your eyes. Well, David's now hearing, it might not have been evil in your eyes, but it was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. He was watching every thing you did. And David, it was evil in his eyes. And then, notice what he says, you despised the word of the Lord. You despised my provisions for you. Everything I had given you was as nothing. You saw something you wanted. You just reached out and took it, despising me, despising my word, despising all of my provisions and everything I had offered and promised you. And please hear me, this at its core is what sin is about. When you and I give in to sin, we are despising God, His word, and His good gifts to us, preferring to follow our own wayward desires. And friends, it is always that way. It's not just David. Think back to the garden. Does this not sound like the garden? Adam, everything, you alone were my image. You ruled over all things. I gave you everything in the earth, everything in the garden. All was yours. And all you had to do was ask me. I walked and talked with you every day. One thing you weren't to touch, Adam, and you went there and you plucked it in defiance of me. You took. David's hearing the same thing now regarding him because that's what sin is. And so notice what God says is, David, the punishment's going to fit the crime. He tells him in verse uh, 9 and 10, 
you killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And not only that, you gave him to the sword of the Ammonites, the very enemies of God, the people who were trying to take away your crown, who were trying to encroach and crush my people. You gave one of your mighty men over to them. And therefore, because you did this, punishment will match the crime. You put the sword into another man's house, sword will rise up in your own. What you reap, David, you are now going to sow. And he continues on in verses 11 and 12. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. And again, there's a tip for tat. The word evil and the word calamity are from the same root in Hebrew. You did evil, you're going to get evil back into your own house. There's going to be calamity is going to befall you, David. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you. You took Uriah's wife, someone's going to take your wives. It's going to end up being his own son Absalom. We'll come to that sorry event later. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'm going to do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Punishment is going to fit your crime, David. Your sin is going to be judged in the open because you are the king. You are my anointed one. And you are the one who is supposed to represent me, and you have not done that, David. You have acted more like the kings of Egypt and Assyria and Ammon and Moab. You are not to be that, and you are going to remember now who is really king. So make no mistake, picture this. David is standing there. The prophet is thundering away. The game of thrones is on in full force. This is exactly where it was, you remember, when Samuel the prophet showed up to Saul. But Saul had interrupted Samuel in the middle of his diatribe and started making excuses. And so we are right back to the same place. Will David submit? Or will David make excuses, put off, continue, and try to maintain his own sense of dignity, his own sense of this is who I am, this is what I wanted to do, and try and claim his own crown. Well, thanks be to God, we find out in verse 13, David does not do that. David says very simply to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David breaks in repentance and David confesses his sin. Notice there's no arguing. You remember Saul was, I did do what the Lord said. I'm not as bad as you're saying I was, Samuel. David doesn't do any of that. He stands there, head hung before the prophet, exposed for everyone in the court. Can you imagine there are probably other people sitting there as Nathan does this. And David the king stands with his head hung he says, all I can say is I have sinned, and I have sinned against Yahweh. True repentance humbly admits that God's word of judgment is true, and it openly confesses sin. How many of you know the, what I've read so far this morning? This is hard. Who would like to have, who would like to go down to the docks this afternoon? And while you're standing there, have a guy jump up and start proclaiming your hidden sin. Any volunteers? I didn't figure there would be. David is confronted with it. This is hard. 
And friends, it is just as hard when God confronts you and me in our sin. Have you ever played where you feel like the Holy Spirit is confronting you? And maybe I've said something I should not have said to Linda. I responded inappropriately. Or I got angry with the child. Or I did something I shouldn't do with one of you. And the Holy Spirit comes back. And what's our immediate reaction? I wish it was I have sinned against Yahweh and you. I, I wish that was my immediate reaction. What there is is an immediate searching around for why what I did was okay. It's not what you think. I know it sounded like I was shouting, but I wasn't really shouting. I know that word sounded harsh, but I wasn't really harsh. You need to understand it from a different perspective. But see, true repentance and confession doesn't do that. It breaks. It humbles itself. We're going to look at this more in the next couple of weeks because we'll go through Psalm 51 and then Psalm 32 because we actually have David, the great psalmist. He wrote two psalms in response to this incident. Psalm 51, confessing his sin, and Psalm 32, celebrating forgiveness. And we'll come to those in the coming weeks. Now, interestingly enough, immediately in verse 13, God sends another word. He has sent a word of judgment and a word of justice, and it is a hard word. It's a hard word, but he now sends a word of forgiveness. Notice Nathan immediately replies to David's confession, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. I, I gotta imagine, boy, you wanna, you wanna hear something? I bet David fell to his knees. Because by his own mouth, he deserved death. As surely as Yahweh lives, if Yahweh exists, if Yahweh's alive, this guy ought to die. And then you hear, you're the man? I need another word. Is there another word there in the bag, prophet? And thanks be to God, there is another word. You've heard the law, now you will hear the gospel, David. Though you are the man, the Lord has forgiven your sin, and you will not die. And do you notice God's word of forgiveness is immediate? He doesn't withhold it. Nathan doesn't have to go away for days and come back. God doesn't say, well, you got to go do 20 things and work this out. Upon confession and repentance, God immediately speaks a word of forgiveness. He does not withhold his forgiveness and love from his repentant child. And that is the way God is with you and with me. When God is speaking to us, don't, don't play the game. Don't get involved in the game of thrones and try and come up with other things. Simply go to God in repentance and confession. Because God is immediate with a word of forgiveness. David has spent the better part of a year trying to hide this. And the second... He opens up and repents and confesses. God says it's forgiven. That second, he has spent a year. And make no mistake, when we get to Psalm 32, you'll see, it was eating David away. He was wasting away. He was dying from the inside. And all he had to do was confess. And then God's word of forgiveness was there. And friends, this is the gospel. 
David has responded to the law which exposed and judged his sin and he now receives the comfort of the gospel assuring him of forgiveness. And this isn't me just waxing as a preacher. We're going to see when he gets to Psalm 32 because of this incident, Paul quotes that in the New Testament and says, this is the gospel. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven and whom God does not take his sin into account. And he's quoting from David there because David heard the law. He now hears the gospel. And notice here, the basis of forgiveness is the Lord has taken away your sin. God does not just, sin's not just forgiven. It's not, well, it didn't really happen. No, it is taken away, and it is taken away by none other than the Lord himself. And notice, David here says, I have sinned against who? The Lord. Now, Please don't misunderstand. We're going to come back and see this in Psalm 51. He's not saying I didn't sin against Uriah because he did. And he's not saying I didn't sin against Bathsheba because he did. And he sinned against Joab and he sinned against other innocent men and all kinds of people that he sinned against. But what David is doing is he's tracing it back and saying, ultimately what I did was I despised God. I despised God's word. I despised God's gift to me. And I'm going to recognize the most heinous thing I did. And since the sin is ultimately against God, only God can deal with it. And so Yahweh is the one who has to take it away to forgive and remove our sin. And again, notice how great this word of forgiveness is. You are not going to die. And see, here's the interesting thing. David was so angry at the man who stole the sheep, he said he deserved to die when the guy didn't according to the law. But what had David actually done? What had he stolen? Life. He hadn't stolen a sheep. The penalty wasn't fourfold because you can't give four Uriahs back to Bathsheba. You can't restore all the other men who died. David by the law of God, did deserve death. Not in a rash moment or a rash vow like David had pronounced on the rich man, the man, David, did deserve death. But the word of the gospel comes in and tells David, you're not going to get justice. You're going to get mercy. More than you deserve, David. And let me What I said earlier, you know, we all like to watch those things, and all of us, it's not just my grandchildren. If I told you about a movie, and I said, and at the end of it, the bad guy gets away with it all, and the the good people, they're all just nailing it, and their life's a disaster after that. Nobody wants to rush out and watch that movie, do they? Because what we think we want is justice. But friend, what you and I really should want is not justice, but mercy. Because if you receive justice and I receive justice, that you think the movies that work out that way are bad. If your life ends with justice, you're in trouble. And so am I. But thanks be to God, the gospel is that there is something beyond justice. Mercy triumphs over justice. Now, it then moves on because that's not the end. And it moves on to this idea of forgiveness and consequences and hope. And This becomes something that explains to you and I a lot of confusion and difficulty regarding what happens in forgiveness. Can there still be consequences and how do we live in hope? So notice, it begins by telling us in verses 13 and 14 that 
David's forgiven, but there's going to be consequences. David says, I sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. But, but, because by doing this, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. And there's actually a disagreement in manuscripts. The, and it may even be, to be honest, that some scribes changed this later because they didn't want to make it say that, well, David was showing utter contempt. But the fact is, who showed contempt to Yahweh? David did. The Lord had already said that. So most of the older ones have actually, you showed contempt this way. Some of them say you caused the enemies to show contempt. But either way, David repents. His sin is forgiven. He spared the death he deserves, all of which is the mercy of God. But notice, but David, there are still consequences for your sin. And in fact, notice what it says. Because by doing this, you made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. But the reality is, you remember David said the man was going to have to pay how many times over? Four. The sad fact is, friends, by the time this story is done, David's going to lose four sons. He struck down Uriah, and four of his sons are going to die. The son that's born here in chapter 12, Amnon, Absalom, and Jedidiah, are, I mean Adonijah, are all going to die. Jedidiah is going to live rule and reign for a long time. Adonijah, four different kings. If you look up the notes, when we put them out on the website, you can even look up the references and see there are going to be consequences. Now, please don't misunderstand. The child's not being judged. When the child dies, the child is going to be with Yahweh. He's a child under God's covenant. And this is an extremely unusual situation here. It's not usually, in fact, later the prophet has to correct where people say, well, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And God says, no, you die for your own sin, not for the sin of another. So it's an unusual situation. But you have to see this is the effect of sin. This is what it does. It always unravels. It always goes out. David thought he had done something. He thought it was contained. He thought he had got away with it. And God says, oh, no. David, here's what you have unleashed in your own house. Because you know what, David? Your sons are watching. And they've seen how to behave. They've seen how you think a king ought to conduct himself. And they will do this. And brother will kill brother. And one of them's going to rise up in rebellion against you and take your wives and do all of this. And then another one's going to be trying to usurp and take the kingdom away from the one that God has given it over to later. And four of your sons are going to do this. And so, notice it's even true after David fasts and pleads for the child. David goes back in and he's trying to plead for the child, which on one hand is a good sign. David is now finally spending time with Yahweh and going face to face. David is forgiven. He is released from the death he deserves. He's even going to stay king. But there are consequences for his sin. And here's what you and I ought to learn. This is another reason to not trifle with sin. Only a fool plays with something so deadly. And David has done it, and it has unleashed all of this in his house. And this is an important point for us to grasp. When you and I are forgiven, does God really, truly forgive our sins? Yes, absolutely. 
Does that mean, therefore, there are never any further consequences for our sins? It does not mean that. And we can think of examples. If I, as an elder in this congregation, engaged in gross moral misconduct, can I be forgiven by the gospel? Should you forgive me? Should I continue standing up here preaching the word next week like nothing happened? No. There should be consequences for my sin. And in fact, those consequences may last as long as I'm breathing on this earth. If you're a parent, do you need to forgive your children? Okay, y'all were not loud enough. Do you need to forgive your children? Yeah, that's better. Let me me hear some gusto on that one. Does that mean once you've forgiven them that there's no consequences? No, it it does not mean that. Sin can be forgiven. That does not mean there are consequences. But what is important, we must never confuse the discipline of our loving Heavenly Father with punishment and the removal of relationship with Him. See, here's what we think of oftentimes is, we think and what we really fear is, if there's discipline going on, relationship has been removed. And the reason we think that is that's exactly what we do sometimes. We think that in dealing with sin, the way I'm going to deal with it is I'm going to restrict and remove relationship. And we should never do that. Please, if you are a parent, hear me on this. Do not do that with your children because if you do that, you are giving them a wrong conception of who God is, what the gospel is, what true forgiveness looks like. God does not remove relationship from you and I. David was still his child. David was still in covenant with God, even the whole time before he had repented. But he was under the discipline of God. And now that forgiveness has been restored, David is able to go in and sit right before the Lord. He is able to worship Yahweh. But there are still consequences that arise from discipline. Please, we need to make sure we learn that. Christ, please hear me. Are you going to be punished for your sin? No. Why are you not going to be punished? Because Christ has borne the wrath of God. There is not one drop of divine holy wrath that remains for your sin or mine. If you are under the blood of Christ, your sin has been dealt with. All the righteous wrath of God has been poured out. And he slayed and he consumed his own son. And he will not bring back punishment upon you or I. The punishment we deserved, Isaiah says, was put on him. You will never be punished by God. But... As a loving father, Hebrews tells us, he might discipline you and me. There's a big difference between the two. And in the discipline, God may say you are forgiven. There will be consequences. This is, again, why we don't mess around with sin. And so notice here that even then, however, with this having been said, God's mercy brings hope into the situation. In verses 24 and 25, we read, David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Why do I have the phrase his wife Bathsheba highlighted there? What's unique about this? 
first time. What has she been every other time? Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife. Now, do you see what God is doing? Did David have a right to Bathsheba? No, he did not. What he did was wicked. What he did has incurred God's justice. What he did is going to have consequences, but God here, don't miss this, says, now, David, Bathsheba is your wife. First time she's called this. They've been married over a year before, but God is now saying, you've made a mess of all of this, but now your wife is Bathsheba. And he goes with her and he lays with her, and she gives birth to his son, and they name him Solomon, who we're going to hear about. And so we already know, if you're following along with the writer and you know the story, you should immediately go back to 2 Samuel 7 and say, oh my gosh, one of David's sons is going to rise up and become the next king, and his name is Solomon. And that son is going to build the temple, and he's going to be in the line of Messiah. And that's this child. Now, This is the thing that's amazing for you and I to consider is that notice here, God's going to fulfill his covenant with David and he's going to do it through the relationship with Bathsheba. If you get what I'm saying, that should twist your mind around a little bit. But notice, she's in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. Bathsheba is there because God is working and doing. And not only notices Solomon born, and is he going to fulfill the covenant, but notice what it says immediately, and the Lord what? Loved him. And so God sends Nathan, but this time with word of mercy. And he says, listen, God loves this child. And so he, I know you named him Solomon, which means peace, basically, and it deals with Jerusalem. But his name is Jedidiah which means he is loved by Yahweh. Yahweh loves this child. Friends, this is the mercy of God. David has made a mess of everything, but the covenant is not gone. The covenant is still on. David has made a mess of everything, but Bathsheba is now his wife. The child born to Bathsheba is loved by Yahweh, and that child will actually be the fulfillment of the covenant. He will be king. He will rule over the kingdom. He will build the temple in the house of God. And it will be through him that Messiah, the true king, the true temple, the one who makes us the temple of God in the world will come. God does all of that by his mercy. That, friends, is redemption. That is redemption. Because what would we have expected God to do? Look, you and Bathsheba, that's over. That's done. Except for, see, Uriah's not coming back. So God graciously says, okay, here's what we're going to do. And then he works redemption even out of that. If nothing else gives you hope in the midst of your sin, when you are struggling with it, God is always a God of redemption. God is a God who can work good out of the biggest mess we make. That's the nature of our God. Now, how do we apply this? Two questions, and we'll come to the Lord's table. First question, and this one's hard. 
How do I respond to God's law, his word of judgment? How do I respond to it? Because God first sent this word of judgment and discipline to David, and David responded with repentance. But remember, Saul did not. So how do I respond? How do I respond when the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin? And if the Holy Spirit does not convict you of sin, please talk to me afterwards because that really concerns me. Because there's sin there of which we should be convicted. How do I respond when the Spirit convicts me? Even more challenging is, how do I respond when others speak God's word of correction to me? It's one thing if you're David and the Lord confronts you in privacy. It's another thing when Nathan shows up and knocks on your door. How do I respond when it is someone else who says, I think what you just did there was sinful. I think what you did there was wrong. Do I respond with humility? Do I respond with confession and repentance? Or do I put up walls? Am I able to hear God's word of rebuke and correction, or do I resist it? This is a serious question for us, because we live in the midst of, even in the church today, do we like to hear God's word of correction? We don't. We we want to begin the entire story with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But see, the actual first word is you're in deep trouble by your own hand and by my own hand. But we don't want to hear that. We want to always hear positive. I mean, that's what, (laughs) if you listen to Christian radio stations, we have positive, uplifting music. Because that's what Nathan spoke to David, right? Positive, uplifting word. See, if David were a modern American evangelical, he said, I'm not, I'm not digging the vibe you're bringing, Nathan. I came in here and I needed something positive to pick me up this morning. No, what David needed was a word of rebuke and correction. Can I hear it when the Spirit is speaking it? Or do I think, I, 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 I got enough weight and problems in my life. Because our weight and our problems are because we're not hearing the Spirit speak correction. So that's the first question. Second one, how do I respond to God's word of grace? There's God's word of law and judgment. There's also God's word of grace, the gospel. How do I respond to it? Because God sends sends this word of grace, mercy, and forgiveness, the gospel. How do I respond to God's word of forgiveness offered to me in the gospel? And let me be very clear about this. What that question means is, first off, have I trusted in Christ alone for salvation? Because I can tell you this, if you are trusting in anything other than grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, your answer is, stick it, God, I don't want your forgiveness. Because there is no other method of forgiveness. You and I cannot work salvation. All you can do is mess it up. That's all I can do. Our Our best works are tainted with sin. So the first way in answering that question is, if you say, well, I would like the word of forgiveness, if you have not responded to Christ in the gospel and believe he alone is the way to salvation, then in fact, 
you have rejected God's word of forgiveness. And if that is true, please grab me afterwards and we'll sit down and we'll chat about that. But if I am a believer and I have responded, do I really receive God's word of forgiveness or do I wallow in my sin? Because see, notice, David wasn't told, go pronounce 12 hail Yahweh's or whatever they would have been called back then. David, go do these works of penance. He's not told any of that. What's he told? The Lord's forgiven your sin. But we can sometimes say, well, I know God, but I, I got to kind of wallow in this for a while. But when I'm doing that, I'm saying, God, I'm not ready to receive your forgiveness. When God pronounces forgiveness, do I receive it? Let me, let me turn it one last way before we come to the table and ask it this way. How do I respond to God's word of forgiveness when consequences for my sin remain? When God says, I have forgiven you, and I wake up tomorrow and there are still consequences for what I did, because I will tell you what will happen then. The devil will be right there saying, God didn't really forgive you. If he had forgiven you, you wouldn't be in this mess. Adam, Eve, if God had really forgiven you when he said he forgave you, you'd be back in the garden. You'd be plucking from that tree of life right now. Anybody ever heard that word in their ears? How do I respond when I wake up and consequences are there? If I so foolishly did what I surmised a few minutes ago and I committed gross moral sin, and you all had to remove me as pastor. And I woke up and discovered that at you know, almost 60 years old, I'm not the most employable guy in the world. And my family was going through difficulties and consequences. And every Sunday I had to come in here and face you knowing I had failed. God, the gospel, my congregation, my family. And I wake up every morning and that's the way it is. Would it be easy for me to believe God has forgiven me? Sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. That would be hard, wouldn't it? Is God's word of forgiveness any less true because I wake up in that situation? It's not, friends. I want to encourage you this week, there's some work in the devotional guide asking you to think through that. Because that is... That is a challenging question for you and me. We get this issue of sin, forgiveness, and consequences wrong. Jer and Ryan and I were chatting about this as I was working on the end of the teaching because I'm convinced this is a lot of what goes on in our own heart. And because we don't understand God's forgiveness is just a little free tidbit, if I don't understand it and I can't respond to it rightly myself, can I hope to respond to your sin and forgive your sin correctly? No. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Because I don't even understand how it works on myself, which is why we are careening off with relational problems. It's all over the place. So when I say that as a believer, there are consequences sometimes. Do I know God has forgiven me? I am cleansed. I am forgiven by the gospel. And what we're going to do is we're going to come down to the Lord's table. And we, as we come here, are going to do this because this table speaks a word of judgment and justice.
and a word of grace. This table speaks the law of God, and it speaks the gospel of God. But it also calls us, in light of that word of judgment, to examine ourselves. Okay, David didn't say, I heard you, Nathan, can we move on to the gospel part? It begins with, I've sinned. Then the word of the gospel comes, how Christ has borne the punishment we deserve and that we are forgiven and loved. So today, as we come to the table, I want to encourage you, hear both God's law and God's gospel. Hear God's word of judgment, but God's word of mercy and grace. And as we do so, I encourage us to receive the forgiveness and mercy that is offered to us in Christ. Uh, Friends, if you are here and you are a visitor, you do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge to participate in this. It is the Lord's table. You are welcome to eat with us. It is a meal for Christians. That's what this is. In taking this, you are proclaiming, I realize my sin. I know I deserve the judgment of God. And my only hope of escaping the judgment and wrath of God, which is righteous, is Jesus Christ. That's what taking this bread and this cup means. If you don't believe that, then we'd encourage you just to let it pass because this is a profession that that's what we believe. But if you do believe this, then please join with us uh, as we come to the Lord's table together. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And therefore, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and he drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each of us here. Lord, where there is sin, I pray the bright light of your Holy Spirit would shine upon it, show us that we might see, confess, repent, and receive your word of grace and forgiveness. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to distribute the elements now. As you get them, please hold on. Let the Lord speak to you regarding sin so that we can confess together, and then we will receive God's word of grace. If you uh, need gluten-free, if you just raise your hand right now, we will bring you gluten-free bread uh, along with that. And we'll take together in just a couple moments. Holy Father, We have heard your word of judgment. We have seen that we have sinned in the thoughts of our mind, 
through the words of our mouth and with the works of our hands. Lord, there is no health in us. Like this bread, we deserve to be crushed and broken and placed into the fire of judgment. Like David, we stand before you exposed, and like him, we humbly confess, I have sinned against the Lord. Please pardon our sin and forgive our rebellion for the sake of David's true son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, you are the true vine of David. You are the lamb who was taken and slain, and this was due to our sin and wickedness. But we now rejoice, for through you we hear God's word of forgiveness. Where we could only expect banishment from God's presence forever, your blood has brought us near. Where we could only expect judgment, your blood has brought us mercy. Where we could only expect punishment of death, your blood has brought us life. So we lift this cup and we give you thanks. And we receive your promise that we are forgiven, that we have been restored that we are children of God forever. And so we say, thanks be to God for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Spirit of the living God, you are the one who has spoken to our hearts the word of the law convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And you are also the one who has let us hear the word of the gospel, assuring us that by the blood of Christ we have been forgiven. This week, O Spirit, give us ears to hear the word of God, hearts to believe the voice of God, mouths to speak the word and gospel of God, and lives that are conformed to the will of God. We ask, O Holy Spirit, that you would do this in the name of Jesus, for the glory of God and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We will conclude with a word of benediction. I'm again going to use the benediction from Psalm 79. I know these weeks we're focusing a lot because it's what's in the Scripture on the sin. Uh, and I pray God is working and exposing things in our hearts. But as He does so, I want to encourage you as you leave, let the word of the gospel have the final word. May God our Savior help you for the glory of his name. May he deliver you and forgive all your sins for his name's sake. Go forth in the spirit of Christ to proclaim 
the good news of the mercy of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.